Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today on the show, I'm joined by Lee Ellis of Seek One to discuss exactly how he handles some of the toughest deer hunting scenarios in the whitetail woods. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today, we are continuing our What Would You Do series, wrapping it up actually. And as you know, if you've listened to the three previous, what we do here is we run our guests through a bunch of different hypothetical hunting scenarios. And this year, I've, I've taken a number of questions and asked them to each one of our guests. So you've heard a few of these over and over and over again. And I did that on purpose because I think it's very interesting and, and, and kind of enlightening to see how each one of these very successful hunters handles the same kind of situation, and they each do it in a different way. That, I think, is kind of encouraging, and I think it's a great reminder for all of us that there's not just one way to do this, that just because so-and-so from Iowa says you have to do it this way, that you can't do it in a completely different way in Michigan or Georgia or Mississippi or Pennsylvania, whatever it is. I think we can learn something from all of these people and then figure out what works in our neck of the woods with our style. And today's guest is a perfect example of this kind of person who's got a very unique kind of niche, but which I think we can learn from and apply to our places. So this is Lee Ellis today. Lee Ellis is one of the founders of Seek One Productions, just a super entertaining very successful uh, deer hunting YouTube channel, social media, full package of media offerings, and they focus on urban deer hunting. So the kind of thing that I did last year with Taylor Chamberlain, you know, Lee is doing this 
to, you know, just at an unbelievable degree with the quality of deer him and his buddies are killing. And they've done it in Georgia. They've done it in Tennessee. They've done it in Ohio, all sorts of different places. They're spreading out and proving that this style of hunting works all across the country. So today we're getting that DIY perspective from someone who knocks on doors, who gets permission to chase deer in kind of funky, different kinds of places. And it's something you can do anywhere. If you want to check out and see a little bit of, of background, I suppose, on Lee and this style of hunting, I recommend you listen to our first podcast with him. Episode 239, we kind of cover the basics and the foundation of how Lee hunts, why he does this, the, the basic kind of shtick. This is like their style of hunting. But today, we're going to get into the specifics of unique scenarios and situations and, uh, you know, just like we do on the gauntlet. Lee's got some good ideas, some interesting stories, and uh, I really enjoyed this one. So I think it's a great way to wrap up our August and then jump into the season. I mean, uh, for a lot of us, September means bow hunting. So I'm uh, very, very excited. I want to give you guys one heads up, some house cleaning before we get into it. I've been telling you guys about my new gear recommendations page on the Meat Eater store. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. You go to store dot themeateater.com slash mark and you're going to see my top recommendations as far as what we offer over on the meat eater store from first light from fhf from all the different brands and, and manufacturers that we now carry so that's that's my little pitch for the day pretty sweet deal for those of you in the market hope you appreciate it if you're not in the market no biggie ignore me stick around for a great chat with lee you're gonna enjoy this one and i appreciate you let's get into it here with me now on the Wired Hunt podcast, and this is a first for me. I'm recording while driving in a pickup truck, and I'm not driving. I'm sitting in the passenger seat, but with me, we've got Lee Ellis. Lee, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We've got crazy schedules, the both of us, so we had to get creative when how we could fit this in. So thank you for making the time. Yeah, we've been dancing around uh, for a while when I've had stuff going on. You've been free. When you've been free, I've had stuff... Or, when you've been busy, I've been free. So it's, yeah, we've finally, the stars have aligned and our schedule are free. So in like I'm a, excited. like a three week window of August, this is the only like couple hour window I think we've had that actually lines up. So <laughs> we're making it work, uh, however we can. So hopefully folks can hear this all. Okay. But, uh, as, as you know, Lee, we're in the middle of this kind of series where I'm going through this, this, what would you do gauntlet where I'm basically running people through a bunch of these challenging, um, tricky hunting scenarios and then seeing how they would deal with them. So I've got a bunch of these for you. There's a couple doozies in here. There's a couple that might bring up bad memories. Uh, and <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to see if you can make it through to the end. So are you, are you game for that challenge? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally game. I, I think that, uh, there's going to be, I think this is one of those things where it's kind of like, there's no right or wrong answer. I, th I think that, uh, people have different hunting styles. So my answer may be different than, you know, someone else's answer. Uh, but you know, I think that that's kind of like how your approach is would, would, it's going to play into kind of how you would attack these scenarios. You're going to yeah. lay on me. So. Yeah. So true. So, uh, so yeah, give me as much of that color when, once I give you some of these, I, some of these situations, feel free to, you know, give me as much of that context as far as like how you're thinking about it, why you would think about it that way. 
even like things that have happened to you in the past that have now colored the way you make these decisions. I think that ends up being the most interesting stuff, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, so let's just get into it. And this is a situation that I'm going to lay out here for you that I know you've, you've been in this situation in the past. You've been in this scenario. And so imagine this. Imagine you get word of a giant deer. Someone on Instagram sends you a DM or something and says, Hey, man, there is an absolute monster buck in my city, in my neighborhood, that's just next level. And I know you're into this kind of thing. If you're interested, you should yeah. come out check it out see if you can get this buck but this is this is not near where you live so it's going to require a drive and it's going to require some some detective work you know nothing more than there's a big buck in this general area that's all you've got you don't have any access you don't have any gps coordinates you don't have any hey i know he lives on this property none of that stuff yeah question is this number one would you follow up on the lead like that, just like a random DM and a picture from somebody? Would you chase that down? And what would be your game plan for that question one? Yes, that's question one. Would you follow it up? And number two, what's the game plan for getting in on that spot? Okay. Um, you're throwing you're throwing me a fastball down the middle here. This is uh, <laughs> this is right up my alley. That is, um. It, honestly, it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way because we have found, I mean, the day and age of social media, everyone's got cell phones and they got really nice cameras. It's like pictures get spread around so fast with social media these days that, uh, you know, it's pretty common that a lot of leads we find are stuff that maybe not that was sent to us necessarily like directly to us, but that we saw posted on Facebook forums or some hunting forums or Instagram, whatever it be. Uh, there's a lot of information out there and we do get sent a bunch of DMS about, you know, people sharing deer and, uh, things like that. But it has also gone the opposite way for us where I've gotten a DM and someone's like, Hey, I saw a huge buck off of this road. Like he ran across the road, whatever, or in this field, and, you know, you should definitely go pursue them. So I go spend, you know, weeks trying to get permission there and running cameras just to get a picture of the deer. And it's like, you know, 120, which is still a good deer. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it's just it's not what we were, you know, looking for kind of thing. So, like, we've I honestly cannot tell you how much time has been spent uh, following up leads that go to dead ends i would say the vast majority of them lead to dead ends um can't get permission or the deer's not you know what he thought he was so whenever i do get a a a lead a dm or see something on social media obviously like seeing a picture of the deer can confirm for you right then and there like hey that's a huge deer but at the same time i like i'll give you an example last year there was a picture that went around Atlanta of this deer that is, two, I mean, way over 200, but believable to be in Atlanta and was told, you know, where it was. I spent weeks getting permission and running cameras trying to find this deer last summer just to find out this guy had posted it on his social media, friends. To say that he saw this huge deer in Atlanta 
<clears throat> and he just didn't want to own up to it when I asked him, like, hey, is that legit? He didn't want to own up to it and be like, no, man, I, I posted it as a joke. He totally just, like, oh, jeez. For whatever reason, just didn't tell me the truth and was like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I saw this, you know, huge deer, blah, blah, blah. Like, so I, I spent so much time wasted during that. So, um, there is a lot of that that happens, but it also is what leads you into finding some of these, like, you know, crazy big deer. A current situation that you and I were talking about before we hit record is I'm chasing a deer in, uh, I'll be vague for the time being in a, in a northern state that is like I can't even describe how enormous he is and I've I've gotten my own trail cam pictures of him uh, I plan on dedicating the vast majority of my season to this deer uh, I, he will definitely be the biggest deer I've ever hunted and that all came from you know a combination of seeing some stuff on Facebook and getting a couple DMs sent to me of like, hey, there's this rumored deer. And I just basically, I feel like I haven't even answered your first question yet. Uh, <laughs> well, you said you'd go after it, but, so that's the big one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when you can confirm that a deer is legit, yeah, I mean, we're going after, you know, a lot of different deer. Uh, so and, there's so there's this big northern deer that's that you got wind of. Let's let's kind of play yeah. out this example, I guess. So you get wind of it, you confirm with a few people, like yeah, they they check. Yep, there's this this deer. He's rumored around here. How do you actually zero in? I mean, do you do you just spend a weekend and like start casting a wide net? Do you plan on multiple trips throughout the year? Like, what's that actually look like to find an out of state? location like that and somehow zero in on a deer like this that you just vaguely know exists in the general region so a lot of it is picture matching um there was a deer i killed in atlanta that is like the first real big deer is a deer we called charlie it's the first video we ever did the reason i found that deer is because there was a picture of him standing in a parking lot uh and i was able to matched the apartment complex and part and parking lot that he was in so once i matched the picture i knew right then and there boom all right it's legit so whenever we can if you can match a picture then you know 100 percent. boom all right this is real it's legit this is where this deer was seen a lot of it a lot of that is boots on the ground so um this particular northern deer was seeing him on facebook different forums you're seeing all kinds of road names up there. And I drove up there and just started door knocking. And, you know, after you talk to 50, 60, 70 different people, you start to, you know, every door knock, I'm trying to get information. So I'm mm -hmm. like, you know, I've got a picture of this deer from social media and I'll flash them a picture of it and be like, you know, have you, even if it's a no, even if they say no to hunting, I'll still you know, strike up a conversation with them, show them a picture and you know, they can sometimes be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I've totally seen that deer. He's huge. Or they'll be like, no, I've never really seen one that big. Um, and so that particular Northern deer, just from door knocking, I was kind of able to match like, okay, this person's never seen him. This person's never seen him. This person claims they've seen one like him or probably seen him. And you, you start to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. And then eventually I ran into someone who actually had a picture on their phone of the deer 
And that's how I confirmed 100% that that's where, you know, that was that deer's range. And then so then I just, you know, hit it running from there and just kind of started to branch out and get as many cameras out in that in that particular area. Is there ever a situation like this, Lee, where there'll be a buck that's too well known, like everyone knows about it and multiple oh, yeah. people are, are, are after it? Will you ever pull out of the pull out of the contest because you just know it's going to be a mess with nine other guys in there or something like that? Yeah, I um, I don't really like to hunt deer that are that are well known. Um, I just don't like to stir the pot with Karens and people like that. Uh huh. So I just I, I don't really. If a deer is super well known, it's it's not like I'm gonna go you know target that particular deer. I I try to find deer that are not that well known. But there was a particular deer in Ohio that uh, was pretty well known, and he was probably. 230 inches last year wow i door knocked on a church and they had like six acres behind their church i got the yes i go back there and the rubs i found were unreal like i've literally never seen the size rubs that i saw behind this church and i was like this has to be that buck and uh as I was walking out there and, and sticking a camera out, I actually had a guy that was currently hunting that deer two houses over. He's probably, you know, a couple hundred yards away. He saw me walk out from his stand and put a camera up. I didn't even see the guy. Ended up making uh, a con or becoming buddies with him, and he's hunted the deer for several years. And I just was like, one, out of respect for him, and he's put in several years hunting this deer, I was like, you know what? I, I don't want to you know, interfere with your hunt for this deer. But two, I don't want to sit in the stand and be looking at this guy every single time that we go to hunt and just kind of wave at each other and be like, Hey, what's up, dude? Like (laughs) that's not, I don't really like that. It's not really my style. And so I, I backed off of that deer this year. He's 250 inches. Wow. (laughs) So I can, I can simply say I have a spot to hunt a 250 inch deer, but I have chosen not to. You're a little crazy, Lee, but I respect you for it. <laughs> um, so th- this is exactly my next question. So you just you just answered my next scenario. But what if I were to pivot a little bit on what you just described there? So so imagine you've got an amazing spot like that where you know there's a big deer. You've got him on camera. He seems dialed in, and you feel good about it. But you go in there to hunt, and you, the situation here is that it's not another guy that has permission, but you spot a trespasser that comes in. So you're hunting, you catch a trespasser coming in that's trying to hunt the same spot. Yep. What do you do in that scenario? Do you, A, do you confront him or not? And then B, when that's all done, do you do you back out as, that as well because you know that this guy is messing around? Or is that a scenario where you will still push it because you're hoping to get rid of him or, or whatever? So... If I have a scenario where I'm hunting, this actually happened to me last year in Tennessee. Um, if I have a scenario where I'm hunting and you know I, I run into a trespasser, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to confront him, not in an aggressive way. I'm just going to go up to him and have a conversation with him. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I don't know who you're, you don't know, you never know who you're walking up on. They've obviously got a bow and arrow or some weapon. It's like the last thing you need to go do is go add fuel to a fire and just, you know, be aggressive, but yeah. I'll go have a conversation with the guy and I'll obviously let him know like, Hey, this is property. I have written permission to be on. I'll make sure that he 
you know, the landowner hadn't given permission to someone else or anything like that. And so if I know that he's, you know, not supposed to be there, I'll ask him like respectfully to leave. Um, but if it takes a step further or like, you know, I'm not going to call the game warden for like just right off the cuff. I'm going to have a conversation with this dude and see if I can just handle it myself first. Um, and if it continues to be an issue from there, I feel like that's when you'd probably have to, you know, contact the landowner and see kind of what they wanted to do Yeah. about it. So, um, I would, but you're saying like with him pressuring the deer, would you move on from that area? Yeah. Like, so, so you're not backing out out of respect like you would with the other person. So in this case, would you back up just cause you think it's busted or would you keep trying? I would, depending on how much pressure's in there, um, I would probably back out completely. I'd run a lot of cameras and, you know, see if that deer is kind of getting comfortable being back in there. And then I would kind of make my approach. I definitely would not keep pushing it if there's been a lot of human activity in that area. 100%, I would back out, let everything settle down in there. Um, and sometimes that's weeks before, you know, things start to kind of return to normal. Yeah. Um, but I've also had areas that, <clears throat> you know, some of the, some of the places that we originally hunted in Atlanta 16 years ago were absolute honey holes. And now there's a lot of hunting pressure in some of these places and it's kind of ruined some of these areas that these, these deer are very keen to human presence and there hadn't been a shooter buck in one of these places that used to have two or three every year in years because these bucks know you know hey i'm experiencing hunting pressure here everyone avoid that like it's they just know to avoid that area um i think if that i think if that area is left alone for a year or two that it would return to normal but um these deer are super super good at finding where there's pressure and where there's not like they're unreal at finding where they're left alone and where they're experiencing pressure. Yeah. So with that in mind, here, here's the situation that things kind of tied into that. Let's okay. imagine you're, you're in your home turf now. You're back back locally, and there's a spot where you've had a, a big giant buck on camera for an entire year previous, and for whatever reason, you didn't go after him, but you've been following him. You know he's there. He's pretty consistent. The summer arrives. You continue getting pictures of him all through the summer up until two weeks before opening day. And for those two weeks prior to opening day, no pictures. Yep. Nothing. Opening day arrives. You still don't have pictures of him. When you look at that first day, are you going to hunt blindly in these places where you used to be? Or are you now at this point in search mode and you don't hunt and in our stead trying to find where he is? Which, absolutely. what would you do? Yeah, I am absolutely not hunting that spot. Um, I would be leaving that place alone because your first sit is always your best sit. And if you plan on hunting that spot or like, you know, if he happens to come back, you know, during the rut or whatever, and you've already had a lot of those deer start to pattern you, like where you're parking, where you're coming in, where you're exiting, those other does and younger bucks in there, like if they're already patterning you, you know, you're, you're really affecting that area, even if he's in there or not, I believe. And 
I don't want any of those deer to be aware of my presence and me going in and out at all. So if he's not in there and I haven't seen him, sure, you can get lucky. And the day he happens to come back, you're there. But I'm in that situation. I'm never hunting there. I feel like my time is better spent uh, being back in search mode, getting more spots, getting new cameras out and finding kind of where he's at. Uh, I rarely am ever hunting. I'm rarely ever putting in sits where I don't feel like I'm in the game because if I don't feel like I'm in the game, I'm just kind of doing more harm than good to that area. Yeah. So in that scenario, the week, the seven days prior, what does search mode look for you for the seven days prior to that hunt? I mean, I'm curious, like how many days are you doing something? What do you, what actually is the time component? Like how much time are you spending on any one of these outings? Is it just door knocking? How many doors would you try? Like what's the scale of the net you would try to cast now at this point? What what would that look like in that seven days prior? So I would obviously get back on my maps and be kind of looking at, you know, where potentially he could have gone, uh, you know, in places I haven't been. Um, and I will door knock and get as many cameras out as I possibly can until I get a picture of him. Sometimes that's, I've had 15 spots to hunt one particular deer before. Um, so, so, but sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes I've only got two or three spots that I've got to hunt a deer and I'm seeing him on those cameras. Um, so in that scenario, he's been gone for seven days. Like seriously, even if it's opening day, I'm not hunting. He hadn't been in there. I'm not hunting. I'm door knocking, getting more cameras out, getting more eyes in the woods and trying to relocate kind of where he went. So I'm kind of starting to cast a small net, you know, going a quarter mile or less. Um, And then, you know, kind of branching out from there. So I kind of just slowly kind of work my way out until I happen to stumble upon kind of where he's gone. But the crazy part is, and this is extremely common in these areas, is that the week of the season, it just seems like these deer know, and they change their pattern. And I've, I've had deer go three or four miles and completely relocate from their summer area right at that beginning time frame of the season. And it's like, you almost have to get just extremely lucky to you know, refine that deer. So a lot of times, you know, if a deer goes missing, like we try our best to relocate them, but a lot of times we don't. And sometimes they'll return later in the year. Um, and we have a chance to hunt them then, but sometimes we, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, we had this deer in the summer, but when he breaks for the season, like for the life of me, I have no idea where he goes. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. 
because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. How much time would you give a buck like that? Like, how long would you invest in trying to refine before you pull the plug? Is it... I mean, I'm sure it's dependent on the deer and stuff like that, but what's your typical amount of effort you'll put in until you finally decide, eh, it's just not not going to happen? Well, if it's a big enough deer, it, it doesn't ever end. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, we'll obviously, I mean, you know, we're trying to find something else to hunt, but if it's a big enough deer, I'll, I'll we'll spend the whole year, uh, you know, continuing to get new spots and just kind of hope, hope that we stumble upon them. Um, so I would, I would kind of say that it's almost never ending. Okay. So, so what about this then? Let's, let's take a different approach. Let's say the buck is showing up and how about we'll go back to your Northern buck example. You've zeroed in on him. You put so much time and energy into this situation and he's daylighting. Like he's a buck that's showing up on your cameras. It's early October. He's in daylight the couple previous days. 
you head in for a hunt, you feel good about it, you get in there, access feels great, everything feels great, no show, doesn't show up. And you got to go home. So now you head home, you have an opportunity now, like the following weekend maybe, to make the trip again, and lo and behold, you're getting a couple days of daylight pictures again leading up to your next trip. Conditions are good. You head in for the second hunt of the year, feeling great again, no show. This happens a third time. You stick around, you hunt again that next day because still the wind's good. You feel confident about your access. You've now had three hunts after this buck, all of them following up daylight trail camera pictures, but he's not shown up any one of those times you go in. What do you do in that scenario? Will you continue on your current path with the same access, the same ideas you've had, and just hope that you know it's going to turn out? Or at what point do you pull the plug and say he's on to me i'm i need to do something different uh that's a really good question and i kind of like i said earlier these deer i don't i think we don't give them enough credit sometimes for how good they are at patterning you and i cannot tell you how many times that happens to us It, it it happens every year you know, that we get a deer on camera, he's consistent. All right, we're green lighting to go hunt him. We go sit, nothing. You know, sit again, nothing. And it's like the days that we pull out, he's daylighting again, go back in there. And even even if you think you're doing everything perfect, like you do everything to the best of your ability, and he's still not showing, he's on to you, 100%, yeah. in my opinion. Um, and that's where, if that happens two or three times, that is where I'm going to take a step back and be like, all right, I got to rethink what I'm doing here of how I'm accessing access to these places is almost as important as anything. Um, I hunted a deer. Here's, here's kind of an example for you. And this was, this was probably four or five years ago. And like, we're always still learning every single year we're learning new things uh we definitely don't have it figured out like we don't have it all figured out there are things to learn every year and you need to be a sponge to try and absorb any lessons to be learned from every hunt every situation i had a deer this was probably i think four years ago and that exact scenario that deer's in there he loved this area but every time i was in there he was never there never be found and I hunted 50 times in a, in a se- in one season. I sat 50 sits, parking my truck in the same parking spot and accessing the woods the same way. And every single time I'd go to sit, I would not see that deer. And every time I'd be gone, he'd come through like it was nothing. <laughs> and he was he was so confident in when I was there and when I wasn't like he loved that area, but he was so confident in he knew my, my pattern and what I was doing that when he knew I wasn't there, he was like, you know, daylight, middle of the day, there all the time. Uh, and so I, I've sat 50 times and at the end of the season, I was like, or actually what happened was later in the year, I pulled my truck up to my parking spot I hadn't even gotten out of the car and I heard a deer blow like, you know, way in the woods, way down deep into this ravine and stuff. And I'm like, 
son of a bitch. They, they figured <laughs> out where I'm parking. And so that's when it kind of clicked in my head. I was like, they've, they've figured me out. And so this was late in the year, January. I'd gone this whole season accessing and parking at the same spot. And I had changed my trees. Like I had changed the tree I had my stand in like three or four times in this area thinking, oh, you know, they pegged me in that tree or I'm going to make my access shorter. And so instead of going, you know, 100 yards in the woods, I'm going to go 40 yards into the woods. Yeah. Just like changing things up, you know. But what it was was where I was parking and walking in like they had it figured out. So I sat 50 times accessing and parking from that same spot. I let my I let the area lay off. I let my cameras roll in there. He came back in there. He settled in there, got comfortable. I asked the landowner if I could access from the opposite side of the property just one time, and I killed a deer the first set. <laughs> wow. And it was because he, I actually used what he had figured out about me. I had used that against him because he was like, if that truck doesn't pull up in that spot, we're good to go. And that day, that truck didn't pull up in that spot, and he got up like he was good to go, and that's when I killed him. So where was he? Did you see where he bedded or where he came from? Did you do you kind of understand how he had you pegged once you saw yeah, what he, he actually did? He was bedding literally right next to where my truck would park. <laughs> so when I was pulling my truck in, that's where he was. He was. He was. He knew it immediately, and then, and then would leave. There was no second guessing when I was in there. As soon as the truck was there, he was twenty yards from the truck. Boom, gone. Is that a thing you have you ever seen anything like that before where these big old deer actually figure out that betting closer to human access is safer from like a surveillance standpoint? Is that a thing you've seen before? Absolutely. Which which makes them and that's that's kind of what's tricky is like uh this so this deer up north, uh this real big one I'm talking about he will stroll through people's yards no problem and seeing the videos and pictures and stuff like you're like where's the challenge in hunting that deer but when i went up there and started door knocking all of the large blocks of woods like the obvious blocks of woods to go door knock on every single one of them has hunters yeah and that deer is purposely avoiding those large blocks of woods like instead of taking a creek through all these woods to get from one block of woods to the other he'll roll through people's yards to get from point a to point b because he's like i know i can't be messed with here and he's experienced pressure he actually got shot last year by a hunter and it didn't kill him he hit, they hit him in no man's land wow um and so i know he's experienced all this this hunting pressure in these places and he's very clearly avoiding them so, yeah, I mean, I, but to kind of really answer your question, yeah, absolutely. Like these deer, uh, they bed where they can know that the area they're going to get up, get up and go spend time in, uh, they know that it's not been tampered with. So they will, they'll position themselves in places where they're able to kind of be aware of, of what's happening in there. Yeah. All right. Well, let's say you're up north. You're in one of these spots. You're up in your tree. And here he comes. He pops out of the little P 
piece of brush on the edge of the yard or something. You had your access just right, and he's at 65 yards heading your direction. Walk me through what is going on in your head, like specifically. Do you say anything to yourself? Do you have a mantra? Do you... What, when do you reach for your bow? How are you going to be thinking about these next 10 seconds when the biggest buck of your life is rolling in? You've invested so much time and energy into. There's got to be pressure. There's got to be stress. How do you manage that? What do you do? So uh, early on in my hunting career was pretty brutal on me uh, to the point where mul- like multiple times I just wanted to, to just hang it up and quit. Because uh, I was experiencing like heartache after heartache. Because you know, when I was 16 and stumbled upon Drew and I stumbled upon the Atlanta thing, uh, you know, we have real big deer to hunt, and so it's like, you know, I, I didn't really grow up in a hunting family, so if it weren't for stumbling onto the door knocking thing, I never would have fallen in love with hunting. But that being said, I didn't have someone teaching me from day one, you know, hey, wait for the deer to do this or this or that. And so I was making mistakes. You know, I can shoot my bow and hit hit a, you know, the target as good as good as you want. But when it's a, a deer's in front of you, it's a total different scenario. Oh, yeah. You got to read the deer's body language. You got to read what angle he's at. You know, there's so much that goes into making a well-placed shot, an effective kill shot on an animal. Um, I wasn't really prepared for that. And so I was, you know, hitting deer, uh, you know, hit a deer in the shoulder or in no man's land or or a quarter two, or he's like, you know, alert and ducks and just, I wasn't, I also like, I had a hard time. I wasn't hugging the shoulder. I would kind of panic and I would be like, kind of back off the shoulder a bit and uh you know i end up hitting deer like in the liver and stuff like that and just uh it made for some really tragic like heartbreaker stories on really nice bucks it's not like you know i messed up on a doe um although that sucks it's not as as gut-wrenching as if it's as if it's 150 inch deer yeah so like my early early on in my career like was full of just mistakes, mistakes, mistakes. And I think a lot of it was due to rushing the situation. Um, things just started happening so fast and I couldn't control my head and things would rush and I'd rush into a shot that was not an effective shot and I should have been patient and I should have waited. So there's kind of a combination of things now you have to be patient and take the right shot, but you also have to be aggressive when that shot opportunity happens. You can't hesitate. Um, when I see that deer, I'm trying to slow everything down as, as best as I possibly can. I'm trying to slow everything down in my head. Uh, and that's really all I'm focusing on is slowing things down, slowing things down, focus on the focus on killing the deer focus on killing deer, be patient, but slow it down, slow it down. Because uh, I think a lot of mistakes are made when people just rush the moment because they're jacked up. So like I try to force myself to slow down. Um, but one of the biggest things that I've done that has helped me just become better at just killing deer is 
shooting a ton of does. We've got a pile of does here, and when you shoot 10 does a year, you get to feeling that confidence that you're just you just feel deadly. And so I've kind of got that confidence with me now where it's like if a deer is 60 yards and then he's in my mind, I have that confidence like he's dead. And that comes from shooting a lot of deer, shooting does. Um, it's just kind of that confidence that you have, like that you kind of carry with you. So I, like if I had to give any advice to someone kind of getting into this or, or starting into bow hunting is like, don't jump right into it and try to kill a 150 inch deer. Like go on a, go on a, a place where, you know, you can shoot a doe, you know, kind of go through and find, find the motions that work for you on, on what calms you down and kind of the system you have that helps you put a, you know, an efficient shot on a deer so that you're kind of ready for when that moment happens. Cause it's, it's impossible to replicate that just adrenaline dump when you lay eyes on a deer you're after. Yeah. So true. Um, but my big thing is I'm just I'm just trying to slow things down, focus on really just slowing it down. Is there any trick or like, I mean like I guess the question that I'm still wondering about is like how do you actually slow it down? Because like like I intellectually know I need to slow it down in the moment, but it's a lot harder to know I need to slow it down versus yeah. like figuring out a way to hit the brakes and actually make my crazy mind do that in that high pressure situation. Like do you have any? Yeah thing that you always do to force the slowing not really um i mean i i've remembered several times where like i've had a deer in range and he was like facing me for a long time and i remember in my head i'm like i've got to pretend like this isn't happening like i've got to put myself somewhere else like yeah i'm on a beach i'm doing something like i'm having a beer i'm not you know i'm i'm doing anything i can to be like i'm not here right now (laughs) I don't know if it really works or not. I don't think it does, but um, the only thing I'm really doing when you know I see a deer like that is I'm trying to I'm I'm telling myself in my head be patient, like be patient, be patient, be patient, but be ready. It's like I'm ready to kill that deer at any second, but be patient, be patient, like wait for the right shot, and you know don't. I'm I'm not gonna force a shot and take a marginal hit on an animal. Yeah. Um. You know, I I would rather take the chance of I'm gonna get back on that deer at another time than you know put a a really bad hit on a deer. Um. So well, I, I I'm I'm pretty much just telling myself be patient in my head. Okay. Well, I, I hate to do this to you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna force you to consider tragedy again. Okay. Because I want to know what you would do. And this is a situation that actually happened to me last year, Lee. I went on my first urban deer hunt last year. and Was that with uh, Taylor? Yeah. Yeah, it went with Taylor. <laughs> and I got yeah. a shot at a deer. And the hit looked good in the moment. Um, but the blood trail was not, the arrow and the blood trail was not as good as I was hoping it would be. It did not match what I thought I saw in my mind's eye. So it's getting worse and worse and worse, and we follow that blood trail all the way to a property line. Yep. And I have to go and find the property owners and get permission. So I go to the door, knock on the door, and the landowner is, like, wigging out. Like, no way. I'm calling the cops on you. There's no way you can track the here. 
What do you do in a scenario like that where you've hit a deer, it's crossed the line, and the landowner won't give you permission, whether it be like just freaking out like that or I'd, I'd be curious what they do, what you would do in my situation where the cops were called and came out. How would you handle that? I'm really glad that your first urban experience, the cops were called. <laughs> it, was a, uh, it was a true got, urban experience. Yeah, you got the full, experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got the full, full experience. Um, so I've actually never had a situation where a homeowner has refused or a landowner has refused to let me retrieve a deer. I, I assume the reason that, that, that they are not wanting you to track is because they're anti-hunting. Maybe they like the deer. Um, they have a heart for the deer. And so I'm trying to you know, play into that of whether or not they agree with hunting, what's done, what's happened is happened. They can't change that. I've shot this deer. The situation we have is that you either let me retrieve this deer where the deer can be put to use and we can use the meat and it, and all of the deer is used, or you can have the situation where that deer rots and goes to a complete and total waste. And having that talk track that conversation like i've never had issues retrieving deer because even if they're adamantly opposed to it uh they still don't want the deer to completely rot and go to waste that being said if someone was still just extremely emotional about it i'd let them call the cops i would i would probably encourage them to call the cops um you know, and, and that way I, I could be like, look, you, you could have a conversation with a cop. I'm sure that the cop would be like, look, you know, could probably call that person down and be like, you know, we are where we are. The deer's back there. You know, can we that he, he would probably try to encourage the, the landowner to be like, let's not let this deer go to rot. Let's get out of here. Get it out of here. And, you know, we can kind of address the hunting issue later. But I would tell him to call the cops. I deal with the cops a lot. <laughs> so, so in my case, the cops were were really cool, um, but the landowner still didn't want us around there. But the the situation was different than what you described. Was that we didn't know if the deer was dead in there, and it ended up being that the blood trail actually hugged the line, and we were able to pick up blood on another neighbor's property right off the edge. And that landowner did give us permission, uh, but the trail dried up after that and we never recovered the deer. So yeah, that was, uh, Dude, was that's, that is one of the toughest parts of there. There's just, there's so many different things that are tough about suburban hunting. One is like tight property lines. You know, you're having to talk to everyone involved. Two is, you know, you're just dealing with a lot of people and you're just getting a lot of mixed opinions about what you're doing, whether they're against it or for it. And, you know, I would much rather uh, have a few hundred acres or a thousand acres where you didn't have to worry about that. But, um, you know, this was kind of a, the urban game is kind of the cards we were dealt. We were making the most of it. And I've, it's definitely something I've fallen in love with, even though there are a significant amount of stresses <laughs> that come along with it. Yeah, you certainly made the most of it. Um, I definitely it's not for everyone like i to i totally get that um you know some people don't want to deal with with the the reason they're going hunting is to get away from people not to deal with more of them so uh 
you know, I definitely get that some people are like, look, the urban thing, not my deal. And I don't blame them at all. Uh, it's a, it's, it takes a, a special kind of hunter, um, you know, that can tolerate and kind of deal with that stuff. And, and again, I think it goes back to, you know, everyone's hunting means a lot of things to different people. And if you're doing it to get lost on some big woods where you're not having to deal with people, then, and that's your thing, like go for it. But for me, I grew up in a city and for me to get lost on 10 acres is the next best thing where I'm getting away from people. So it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely different. It's not for everybody. I totally get that. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm getting a lot of changing perspectives on it too. Cause, um, you know, we just went to Hawaii and did a lot of spot and stock stuff. We just got back from Utah and did some, uh, scouting for like mule deer out there. I'm going to Kansas this year. Uh, I hunted North Dakota last year, which is, you know, middle of nowhere. And, uh, I definitely get where if, you know, I grew up hunting some of those big areas where I would kind of be like, you know, <laughs> not wanting to get into the urban game. Yeah. It's a different, whole different ball of wax. That's uh that's for certain. You so, think you'll do it again? You know, I kind of fall into the camp of the person you described, which is I like hunting because I like to get away from people. Yeah. So I, I actually grew up like I learned to bow hunt in a semi-urban scenario. Like I had three acres behind my parents' house, and that's where I first bow hunted. And the first deer I ever killed was on those three acres after a couple and their dog came walking past me 10 yards in front of my blind. So like I I did that. I have some experience, and I see the redeeming qualities. But if I have a non-urban opportunity, which I currently do, I prefer that over that situation just because of the stresses of, of people. And I, I don't always like being around people, I guess. So, yeah, there's a lot of added stress to it, but yeah. So I wouldn't, it's also it still super rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. I can see the appeal. I, I'm not ruling out going back. It's definitely, I have like, I have that personality trait where if I don't quite get it figured out that first time, it kind of gnaws at me until I can yeah. figure it out. So I still think that's a possibility, but I can tell you it won't yeah. be this year. I'm taking yeah. at least this year off. <laughs> <laughs> Take a breather, regroup, and then we'll readdress the situation. <laughs> exactly. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Here's another one I got for you, Lee. And this is, this is right. one that I, I ask a lot of people a question like this because it's a scenario that I come up across hunting in, you know, various Midwestern places and stuff. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's different for you in an urban situation than it would be for me on a 100-acre farm in the Midwest. So here's okay. the deal. Let's say it's November and you are on the ground scouting a spot. I don't know why you're scouting it, but let's say you, you just had to move into a new pro- Maybe you just got access on this property and you're walking it for the first time. You get out there and you find just a dynamite spot. Like it's a spot that screams big buck. It's a, it's like a funnel type location where stuff converges into a relatively narrow area. There's good trails dumping into this spot. There's doe bedding upwind of it. And there's just ripped up scrapes and rubs. Like all the things you dream about, it's all here. It looks great. But there's a problem. The problem is that there's not a good tree with an easy range of this like perfect little convergence of these trails in this little narrow spot. So you've got two tree options. You've got one tree option that is at 20 yards from this spot where there's the huge scrape and the three trails that all come together. So you could be perfectly 20 yards from this spot. The problem with the tree is that it is a bean pole. It is super skinny. There's zero cover on it. And there's one other trail that's on the downwind side of that as well. And you know that there's a chance that there could be deer coming downwind of you. It's not, you know, you're still, you're downwind of the best of the best, but no cover in the tree. And there's still a chance that someone could get behind you. 
So that's one option. The second option is a perfect tree. It's like a scrubby oak tree with all sorts of branches coming out of it and there's still leaf cover and you could get up in there and they'll never see you and it's downwind of all the trails and there's a little bit of water that's like a water feature behind you let's say like a, a pond or a creek or something so you feel very confident that nothing's going to wind you and oh by the way this is a high deer density area so right. there are a, deer, a lot of deer moving around so my question for you Lee is do you take the easy shot tree that's close to the convergence but has these risks or do you say I'd rather be super safe be downwind of everything and risk this deer being you know 44 yards away instead of 20 what would you do in that case uh that's a no-brainer to me I'm taking the tree that is further away but more ideal and I guess you could sort of like for me personally I'm comfortable shooting to to you know 40 yards um but for someone who's not, I would still say use the tree that's far off of the, you know, the scrape and the, and the combining of trails and stuff. Because you can almost treat that your sits as like an observation set. So you at least know that you're not going in there and blowing stuff up and busting stuff up and, you know, blowing deer out trying to get that perfect 20 yard shot easier way into it i would start in that tree that's further off and if you sit there a couple times and you know you do a couple observation sets even and you kind of learn like okay these are where the deer are coming from i do think i could get away with being in that bean tree that poultry um then you could maybe make an adjustment there but i definitely would not barge in and uh you know be making your presence super known and, and kind of be risking blowing a bunch of deer out. Uh, I would rather play it safe and kind of ease my way into it. Uh, I also think that I, we use mock scrapes a lot. So I would like to get in that tree. That's a lot better. Your wind's better. Your access is better. Your cover's better. I, I'd throw in a mock scrape 25 yards from that tree and see if they start to take to it. Uh, and then, you know, kind of go from there. You could also call too. I mean, you can rattle and, and potentially call a deer in the shooting range. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely, and that's, again, that's just personally, that's my style. Like I want to try and be as smart and I'm almost like, I almost overthink every situation uh, because I'm so paranoid that these deer are going to be aware of my presence. Is there ever a situation like that where because of the proximity of other people, like specifically with wind, one of the things I wondered about on my urban hunt was, can I get away with more from a wind perspective? Because even if they're not used to people walking down into the creek bottom, there's kids playing on the edge of the yard 50 yards away and the wind's got to blow in there a lot. And can I get away with the wind being a little bit more funky than I would in other places? Like, would you like take that same scenario, but let's adjust it just a little bit and just say like the big limiting factor now is, is just like it's down the bottom and the wind's going to swirl. You think like it's a steep little bottom. There's two yards on either side of the Creek, but the deer are traveling down the Creek bottom. Would you risk a swirly, whirly wind down there? Or do you think like you can get away with that sometimes because of the urban, you know, stuff going on so i think yeah i mean there's a 
there's one of the big misconceptions with urban deer is that, oh, you don't have to worry about your wind. They smell people all the time. They're used to it. Well, they're used to smelling people and being a, and being able to identify where that, that smell, that source is coming from. So if they smell kids playing in the yard and the kids are making noise and moving around and they sit there and they're seeing them, that's no issue to them. But when they're walking through the woods and where, you know, 99 times out of 100, they're not smelling someone that they can't see. And all of a sudden they're walking through the woods, they get a whiff of a human and they're like, where, where is he? Where is he? Right. Can't find Can't see him. That's when they're, they're busting you. We get busted all the time. Um, uh, I had a situation last year where I'm on a doe hunt, it's late season, and you know, I had this deer catch my wind. She blew and kind of ran back like, I don't know, 80 yards. And she was standing like 10 feet below this person's deck, like right behind their garage door and stuff looking in my direction, like trying to find me. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, those people, like she has to smell humans at that house. There's like, there's no doubt. They, they're, those people are in their yard. I'm sure they're on their back deck. Like she's, she has smelled people at that house. Yet she's standing there they're about to blow at me and blow out of here because she smelled a human. But the difference was she couldn't find where I was and that wasn't normal. So she blew out of there and was standing next to a, an, a house that is probably covered in human scent. But, you know, the human scent there, she's able to identify with that house, but she's still wind checking me, blow, you know, lifting her nose up in the air, wind checking me uh, from where I'm hiding in the woods, trying to find where I'm at because she identified that human smell where it's not supposed to be. Yeah. So they're really good at you know so it, my point is that yes your your wind and scent is still super super important in these urban areas i do think there are situations where does are potentially more tolerant um if they're around people a ton like a ton in parks or whatever um you know, I've definitely had situations where like a doe has smelled me and has not cared as much as like a deer on, you know, a thousand acres. But the vast majority, uh, these deer are extremely keen to human scent where it's coming from. If they can't find it, they'll blow out of there. It's so interesting how they can, there, there's this threshold that they figure out that they know it's when it's safe or not. And if you just seem to cross that line a little bit or if it's not where it's expected it's uh it's alarm bells ringing fast and and what i've noticed this is for anywhere that you're hunting we were we were just hunting hawaii and we were hunting axis deer and we were hiking kind of in these these mountain areas uh spot and stalking these axis deer and there's hiking trails uh you know that people go on on occasion and um you know if we were walking around and stuff the person we were with who's hunted there his entire life is trying to mimic a walker, a hiker. He's like parking by this bench, his truck by this bench where people park to picnic and making noise on purpose and acting like this is just, you know, we're not a hunter. We're, we're just here on a picnic. We do the same stuff 
back home. Like you're trying to not act like a predator. So if I had landed a brand new hunting spot and it's November and it's prime time and I really don't want to go in there and blow the area out, I'll walk in there and purposely be having a conversation with myself. I'll, I'll be talking, <laughs> like making noise on purpose. And if I see a deer, I'm not making eye contact with them at all. I'm barely even looking at them. And they'll identify you as like, you know, oh, I've seen this before as some person that's, you know, strolled through the woods that is just exploring or whatever. They'll kind of associate you with like, that's just what that was as opposed to, okay, this person's acting like a predator. They're quiet. They're slipping around. They're paying a lot of attention to me. They're looking at me a lot. You know, I I remember one of the biggest deer I've ever killed uh, was a 203-inch deer like six or seven years ago. Same exact scenario. I got a new spot. The deer went missing. He, he ran to his rut area. Couldn't find him. Trying to relocate him. I get a spot. I walk down in this ravine, and I'm talking to myself, and he pops up across the ravine like 150, 200 yards away, and it's unmistakably him. And instead of sit there like trying to get pictures or through my binos or anything like that or paying him any attention, I literally just looked away and walked back up the hill and back up there and just like pretended like I never saw him, paid him zero attention. And he didn't give, he didn't care at all that he had just had that experience with me. He didn't associate it at all with like danger. I, I think these deer know when you're like paying them attention. Yeah. I think you can take that same kind of approach, even apply it to, you know, farm country or something. But in that case, it's, you know, the farmer that they're used to or, Yep. the dirt bikers or whatever it is there's different ways you can blend in with what's normal just figure yep. out what's the normal thing they're used to use that to your advantage 100 percent. all right lee you've made it through the main gauntlet of the what would you do trials but now we've got the rapid fire final round here i'm just going to give you a series of quick questions and i'm looking for a, a one word answer from you just your gut thought right out the gate cool? all right tell me all right here we go. Number one, does the moon matter to deer movement? Yes or no? Yes. Would you take a 50-yard shot at a whitetail with your bow? Yes or no? Yes. If you could only have one of these tools for the rest of your hunt, which would it be? Rattling antlers or grunt tube? Rattling antlers. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads? Oof. <laughs> um... I'm undecided currently. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> Should you stop a buck that's moving with some kind of sound before shooting with your bow? Yes or no? Preferably no. All right. Here's the last one. You can you can give more than a one-word answer, or you should give more than a one-word answer on this last one. Let's say that I rule the world, and I'm going to take away your hunting privileges for the rest of your life, Lee, unless, unless you can kill a five-year-old buck this year but you only get one day to do it you get one day to hunt you can pick any location in any place in any kind of stand site you want tell me the date on the calendar you would choose for this hunt and describe for me like your perfect scenario for this very high pressure high stakes hunt you want me to tell you location? I or? mean, you don't need to tell me the specific location but like I would do this state this kind of spot you know, on this date would, you know, whatever date you think would give you your best chance. I would go November 
fourth. And I would have to go with my bread and butter in Atlanta. Uh, and I would be in hardwoods somewhere around scrapes. Scrapes and hardwoods. And would this be like a big chunk of timber that you happen to have? Or would this be like a tiny little focused piece of timber that happens to be just the hot spot? Like, give me a little more detail on what that like ideal scenario would be. It is, uh, it's, it's probably five acres of hardwoods and it funnels out of a much larger, you know, several hundred acre piece of property that cannot be hunted. Mm, Yeah. And they kind of funnel out of that area and kind of funnel into my little five acre ridge. It's like a pinch. So I, I like areas that pinch deer a lot. And this little spot I've got, you know, there's hundreds of wide open acres and they all funnel this little creek and this hardwood ridge into this little area. And it puts them, you know, 50 to 60 yards from me coming from, it, it, it just cuts off a lot of trails they can take. And it, I'm always looking for really good funnels. So I would say a good hardwood funnel, November 4th with scrapes around. That sounds really good. I like the sounds of it. I feel like uh, I feel good about your chances, Lee. Um, what uh, before I let you go? What what should people be expecting to see from you guys this year? Where can they follow your content this fall? Um, anything you want to plug? Please let our folks know. Um. Yeah. I mean, our channel is uh, Seek One on YouTube. Um, we are going to be getting content out really quick this year. Uh, we're traveling to a lot of new places, places we haven't been. Um, we're branching out. We're, we're sticking to our bread and butter, which is the urban game, the door knocking game. Um, but we are branching outside of that this year with, uh, you know, some bigger woods hunts. Uh, I've drew some tags in Kansas, so I'm going to knock on some farmer's doors out there. Uh, going to North Dakota, doing the same thing up there, getting different experiences and, uh, you know, wanting to challenge ourselves in different environments. Um, I'll probably be posting most of my stuff on my personal Instagram. Um, I've made this name when I was 16 years, like 14, 15 years old in high school. And I just, I should have changed it, but I never did. (laughs) People ask me all, people ask me all the time about that. I'm like, dude, I don't know. I like, I, I made the name when I was 14 years old and I just, at some point, it was too late, and I just never changed it. Uh, it's the underscore Roy is my personal one, and then Sequin Productions is our kind of homepage on Instagram as well. So I got to ask, is the northern buck hunt, is that something you're going to be sharing updates throughout the year, or are you going to keep it quiet till it's all said and done, and then we'll find out what happened? To be honest, I was, I was going to, uh, you know, try to – I like to – I like to share my stuff. Like, you know, I, I want to pe- keep people like take them along for the ride. So I'm going to be posting updates on my, probably my personal Instagram, um, kind of throughout that journey. But I've also been sort of coming ac- across the thought process of this deer is such next level. I might just go dark until it's done. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you. I, I get that. <laughs> so, we'll see. Well, I will be crossing all my fingers and toes, and uh, hopefully we can have another chat like this after it's all said and done and have a good story to tell. Uh, so one last thing, uh, and the reason I'm bringing it up is I'm actually headed there right after we hang up. 
for the sake of flying under the radar from the Karens and stuff in these neighborhoods, uh-huh. I've actually I bought a uh, a very used and beat up uh, Honda Element <laughs> at a car auction. I'm gonna slap a Hello Kitty sticker on the back window <laughs> and I promise you that no one's gonna look at that vehicle and think, yeah, that dude's hunting back there. That is like genius. Truck. That is so. genius. <laughs> well, if I run across, uh huh. Well, good <laughs> luck, man. I hope it comes together for you. I appreciate you taking time to to chat through this stuff. If you want to come to Atlanta, man, you got open invite. If you want to revisit that urban that urban hunt, I I feel like I need to at some point. I've gotta I've gotta get that monkey off my back. So uh, we're have to find a time to make it happen. Yeah, let's do it. All right, Lee. Thanks again. Have a good one. Yeah. See you, man. All right, and that is a wrap. Definitely go check out what Lee's got cooking over at the Seek One YouTube channel. Follow along. I'm uh, excited to see how this season goes for him. So with that out of the way, thank you for listening. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.